Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. One topic, broadly speaking, growing repression at the state level, but with two guests. We'll hear from the writer Judith Levine on the latest sex panics, and then from the University of Florida English professor Phil Wegner on Governor Ron DeSantis' crackdown on academic freedom. There's a bill in the Indiana legislature to stop state funding for the Kinsey Institute, full name Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. It's named after the famous sex researcher Alfred Kinsey, who is a professor at Indiana University. Founded in 1947, it was independent until it was merged with the university in 2016. It and the researcher it was named after have been controversial from the start, as is anything connected to sex in this Puritan culture. And now a member of the state legislature, Larissa Sweet, is trying to stop state funding for the institute. Why? And to add to this, the current frenzy over trans kids, and it looks like we're deep in yet another sex panic. To help us make sense of this, we're joined by the journalist Judith Levine. Judy has been researching and writing about sex, feminism, and free expression for a long time. Her 2002 book, Harmful to Minors, The Perils of Protecting Children from Sex, looked mostly at the sex panics of the 1980s and 1990s. Here she is to look at the current panics. Judith Levine. Okay, as I told you, uh, your 2002 book, Harmful to Minors, popped up in my office the other day, and I was just looking through it before I called you. Things aren't quite the same now, but there is an awful lot of continuity. And uh, one of the striking things, it's all about protecting the children. Then it was Satanist daycare workers. Now it's child porn and the mortal dangers of exposing minors to drag shows. Let's just review the uh, the landscape of sexual panic we're experiencing right now. Um, and starting with uh, the Indiana state government's move to cancel funding for the Kinsey Institute. It's not final. It may not be for a few weeks, but it's still some scary stuff. Uh, the legislator leading the charge, Larissa Sweet, said it's all about criminal child exploitation. What do you make of the, the move against uh, Kinsey? What's going on is a, a tangle of three things that often go together, children, sexuality, and public education. America is always panicked about the protection of children, and the thing that they want to protect children from the most is sexuality. Public education, now Indiana University is not exactly a place where children go, but it is something that the legislature has some control over. Uh, is a place where kids move away from their families. So Indiana has also just passed a law not allowing kids to use their preferred pronouns unless their parents are apprised of it. So that's one thing that's happening. So here's the Kinsey Institute. Probably most Indianans don't even know what the Kinsey Institute is. They probably have vaguely heard of Kinsey. The accusation is that Kinsey himself abused children in doing his research about human sexuality. This is what really happened. Kinsey had as one of his informants a guy named Rex King, who was a pedophile, who kept records of his real or imagined sexual encounters with children, and he gave them to Kinsey, and Kinsey used them as data. Did this, these things really happen? We don't know. So what happens with all this stuff is there's a sort of an illusion. Kinsey is reading this stuff, he is studying it, and he's writing about it, and therefore he must be advocating it. This is the same thing that happened to me. I wrote a book in 2002. I quoted a meta study by some psychologists that found that sex between minors and adults was not necessarily traumatic to the minor. They were accused of advocating pedophilia, and I was accused of advocating pedophilia simply for quoting them. That's what's happening all over the country is this stirring up of fears about kids. And it's always a really good way to get people emotionally involved in usually right-wing politics, but the left uh, can be faulted for this stuff too. Kinsey has been a target for a long time, right? This goes way back. He has been, but you know, when, when his um, reports first came out in the late 40s and early 50s, they were great bestsellers. What he did was he told America that it wasn't what it thought it was. People were not either heterosexual or homosexual. People were masturbating. They were having premarital sex. They were having sex with animals. It was titillating. You know, people kind of like to hear that. And of course, the same people who had been opposing vice in the 1950s, opposing pornography, accused Kinsey of himself of being a pornographer and of leading America down the garden path. Later on in the 80s, uh, late 80s, this person named Judith Reisman made it her life's work 
to attack Kinsey. And she's the one who found out about this child stuff. I mean, it's in the books. She wrote about a half a dozen books against Kinsey. She blamed him for everything. She blamed him for the sexual revolution. She blamed him for the fact that there are queer people. I mean, she really blamed him for the, for the, the fall of American civilization. And then again, you know, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, another so-called doctor, picked up Reisman's work. And that was in the late 90s and early 2000s when they got on me. So Kinsey has been, you're right, the target of lots of attacks about sexuality at all and not just about children's sexuality. Do these people think that the only people who should investigate childhood sexuality, pedophilia, whatever, are the police and academics and psychiatrists should not touch it? I don't think they think anybody should. Except the police. Police are not investigating child sexuality. They are arresting people for thinking about or sometimes doing. I mean, people do abuse children. This is true. But it's always been really, really hard for academics or sociologists, for psychologists to get money to study child sexuality. My book had a very, very hard time finding a publisher. And when it came out, there was a big attack on the University of Minnesota, which published it. There is an assumption that somehow if you are studying child sexuality, you must be interested sexually in children. There's another story, a guy named Tom Hubbard at the University of Texas, Austin. He's a classicist, wrote about pederasty in uh, Classic Creek and Roman times. He also was run out of Austin. I mean, he was practically, you know, his house was practically burned down for promoting sex with children. So the latest iteration of this is that to talk about these things is to do positive harm to someone. You don't have to actually touch a person or abuse a person. You merely need to speak to a person, and that can be traumatic. This was also the charge against any gay or lesbian teacher or college professor, that simply the act of speech about that kind of sexuality was a recruitment tool, and it would possibly harm the students. Going back at least as far as Freud, though, people really freak out when you talk about not merely sex in the proximity of children, but children having some kind of sexuality or sexual feelings at all. They do, uh, strangely, having all of, all of them having been children. <laughs> <laughs> and probably having, you know, masturbated or thought about stuff or tried to sneak, you know, some pornography. You know, now this is like no stopping them, right? They can go on the Internet. People always ask me, like, why are Americans so crazy about kids and sex? The answer is, damned if I know. (laughs) Really, it's incomprehensible in a certain way. I mean, it's not totally incomprehensible. Sex can be a scary thing. You don't want your kids to have too much pleasure. And of course, sexual harm is real. And so I think we, I know we have an exaggerated notion of how much child predation there is out there, but there is child predation. Actually, I think over the many years that I've studied this, I've come to think that incest, for instance, between adults and children is far more common than I thought it was. So it's real. People want to protect children. That's, you know, that's a good impulse, but they don't want to protect them from homelessness or, you know, not having health care or, you know, stuff like that or guns. These same people, this same person who uh, sponsored the bill to defund Kinsey also just recently sponsored several Second Amendment protection bills. <laughs> well, these people have sent out their Christmas cards with the, the whole family armed. It's really very disturbing. On one side, comical, but on the other side, it's really just what is wrong with these people? Um, okay, so then relatedly, um, you know, we're just seeing this in- intense freak out over um, drag queen story hour, trans kids. How much of this is about the kids and how much of it is a, a freak out more generally about transness? I guess it's both. It always packs more of a punch if you talk about children. There's also this problem of parental rights, you know, this idea that kids in school are really just, you know, the sort of instruments of their parents. They should not not have any independent life. Kinsey shocking people by telling them that America was, you know, not as straight as people thought or hoped it was. The idea that somebody might not actually know the gender of a person, that people are not just necessarily male or female, that there are many genders, they're not just feminine and masculine. It's profoundly destabilizing to a lot of people. I think to most people it is, you know, people who, who are not trans themselves or, or do not feel themselves somewhere between masculine and feminine. In reality, almost everybody is there. 
just like Kinsey said, everybody is like on the scale between homo and heterosexuality. But this for people, I think, is the primary biological fact. That is, some people are men and some people are women. Some people are boys and some people are girls. The idea that it's a mixture of personality, embodiment, culture, history, all of those things that makes a person gender, it's complicated and scary. I'm speaking with the journalist Judith Levine. Is this a constant in American culture or does it go through cycles? It goes through cycles. It's reliable. If you're interested in raising a hysteria, this is a good one. <laughs> it's always a good one to have. But what people are worried about varies. You know, in the 19th century, the age of consent was, you know, like nine for girls and 12 for boys. And in some places, there wasn't any age of consent at all. In fact, people got married at those ages. And by the time they were 30, they were practically dead. Age is something we think differently about at different times. People sort of see sex panics as going along with, let's say, you know, the economy. I don't really think that that happens necessarily. There have been sex panics in fat times and thin times. But I do think that the the cycles are going faster. There seems to be very little pause anymore between them. There was one in the 1920s. There was one in the 1950s. Then it was a long time. There was not one until really the 1980s, which was a reaction against the sexual revolution. The 60s and 70s, we had the, the sexual revolution. It seemed like it took some time for a backlash to develop that had the upper hand for a couple of decades. Yeah, and in fact, the 60s and 70s, particularly the 70s, were a a moment in which, I don't know if a majority, but there's kind of an understanding that, yes, kids have sexuality, that kids, you know, masturbate and they play doctor and stuff like that. And that's okay. In fact, it's healthy. And there's some books that came out about that. And, you know, so there was a moment of sort of a little children's sexual revolution and slight relaxation among adults about it. Freud had a a kind of a paradoxical effect. On one hand, uh, he exposed that, you know, everyone has sexuality as a child. This is a normal thing. But he also made people worry about it because he seeded all neurosis and all unhappiness in uh, originating and problems with uh, child sexuality and becoming an adult sexually. So now we have we have a child sex panic, like, you know, every three minutes. I mean, it just doesn't end. The specific forms of it seem to vary, but uh, the underlying structure seems, at this point, timeless. Yeah, it does, you know, but it's like, you know, now the word pedophile is just thrown in among all the bad things you can be. A groomer, too. A pedophile, a groomer. And a groomer is something that, you know, they used to call recruiters, you know, molesters were not just molesting children, they were bringing them in, you know, into their club. But, you know, you just throw pedophile in now, like it's a thing that, you know, on Twitter, if you want to insult somebody, you call them a pedophile. You said uh, early in the interview that there's also a left angle to this. What would you have in mind there? I always find it amusing that in the 50s and 60s that um, like the John Birch Society and the, you know, Citizens for Decency Through Law, all of these groups were accusing communists of being, you know, sex perverts. Now, you and I know that the Communist Party was rather prim and rather <laughs> anti-sexual and not at all like a great party's lowercase p. But the left also has certainly feminism. You know, there's a conservative feminism that equates sexual speech with sexual harm, you know, pornography with violence, a, a feeling that all relationships of unequal power must also be exploitive. Um, and that can be between men and women, people of different ages. The left certainly has its prudery. Here's a good example. On every single NPR story, you know, there's a little warning in the beginning. Warning to listeners, this may not be appropriate for children. Or warning for listeners, something upsetting is going to be talked about in the next five minutes. You know, this sense that and maybe a child might be in the room and hear it and be traumatized for life. You know, this idea of a kind of fragility not just of children, but of adults, that we can't hear anything, that we can't experience anything that we don't understand that might upset us. I do think that that is, that's a product of the left. And I hate to say, but I think that the conservative notion of the snowflake is in some ways true. There is real exploitation. There is real harm. There is real violence against people. And I often feel that we cheapen that by talking about everything being harmful. 
And a lot of uh, transphobia is coming out of at least a, the conservative wing of feminism we're talking about. It is. You know, it's, it's really strong in Britain, but and not quite as strong here. I, I think that has a kind of um, a different source, which is the fear that women are going to be erased, that no sooner have we been recognized <laughs> as women and there being a war against women and against women's bodies and women's rights, that there's this fear that somehow trans people are going to erase even the word women and they're going to take over womanhood. One could think about it the way I do, which is that, you know, let's welcome anybody who wants to be a woman. Why anybody wants to be a woman, I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> anybody who calls herself a woman is a woman. You know, I don't, I don't really understand why that's worrisome. But I do understand the feeling that women have really fought hard and are still under attack. It was just like when women's studies became gender studies. It was at the, that time, too, not necessarily just among conservative feminists, but among feminists altogether, a discussion about, like, should we get rid of the word women? And so there's a lot of academic departments that are called women and gender studies. So how do we fight this stuff? Any advice? <laughs> I'm never good at this part. I really fear that the alternate realities, Q is, is their big anti-pedophiles. I guess we... One thing we can do is parents like yourself can simply, you know, let their kids have a certain amount of independence and talk about it to other parents. Um, I do think that it's really, really important for us to develop a discourse about public education, which is that it is public. It is really not about families. This is why we all pay taxes for public schools. It is good for society. It is good for everyone. It is good for the economy. You know, it's good to have educated citizens. We don't give vouchers to parents for their schooling. You know, if they want a private school, let them do it. But this is a public institution. And within that, children become citizens of, of the world and, and of the public. They contribute, they learn from, and that's a good thing. So I do think that we can do it through the schools. I do think it's really, really important, not just for parents, but other people who care about schools and about kids and about their communities to stand up for the public schools, to stand up for sex education, to stand up for a broad range of education for kids to be able to learn to be critical thinkers and question and have opinions and, and all the rest of it. So I do think that is one place where there's still a chance to um, fight back. The right is making a big deal out of parental rights in school where the parents can pretty much veto anything that goes on in the classroom. That's right. I mean, and that's something that also began, you know, this has roots back in the late 70s. There was even a, an amendment, proposed amendment, there was an organization, parental rights amendment, that would allow parents to do all of the things that they want parents to be able to do now, which is to veto anything in the classroom, to pull their kids out of anything. In fact, not just to pull their kids out, to pull every kid out. And the person who was the second um, president or ED or something of this little organization was none other than Betsy DeVos. So Betsy DeVos has had it in for public education for a long time. In the 80s, there, there was, you know, a, a lot of all the stuff around sexuality, around sex education, around contraception, abortion. It's not an accident that one of the first restrictions on abortion was parental rights. You know, the first was no Medicaid for abortion. Poor people shouldn't, you know, have their abortions paid for. And the next one was that parents had to intervene if a minor was going to have an abortion. So that's been around for a long time. And this idea that, like Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There are only families. And so this idea that somehow the child belongs to the family, that the family is the only, and it's not just the essential unit of society, it is the only unit of society, and that we should have no public goods, no public square, no public institutions. Parents somehow should be running not only their kids' lives, but everybody else's lives. This use of children um, as the first line of offense uh, seems to be a way of uh, making a broader point. It's, it's harder to resist uh, things done in the name of children, um, but even though the ultimate vision is uh, to have a much more restrictive society for grownups as well. That's right. And, you know, like obscenity law was, you know, in the 19th century was founded on the idea that vulnerable minds, meaning women, children and the feeble minded, as they call them in British law, would be influenced by bad ideas and bad images to do bad things. And children were always at the forefront of that vulnerability. And so you could always use and this has been used over and over for censorship, for instance. And we've fought back and certain more progressive Supreme Courts have fought back and said, they've said that we shouldn't censor everything, you know, down to the level of, you know, what's okay for an elementary school child. But 
They never say might be all right for an elementary school child, too. There is a bottom line. There are no sexual liberals when it comes to children. Everybody's okay with censoring stuff for kids, even if they're not okay with censoring stuff for adults. Not everybody, but you know, most, not, maybe not you. I was the journalist Judith Levine. My name is Doug Henwood, and the program is Behind the News. Back after a musical break. Some of Swampy knew from dry cleaning. Next, The War and Academic Freedom, Florida Theater, starring Governor Ron DeSantis. Last year, there was his Stop Woke Act, Stop Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees, those sorts just love acronyms, which regulates training and instruction in schools and workplaces. No talk of racism would be allowed anymore. It might hurt white feelings, which is funny coming from a crew that mocks leftists as snowflakes. Now, Florida House Bill 999 is making its way through the legislature. It would turn the state university system into an instrument of patriotic indoctrination. It's a horror. Here with more is Phil Wegner, a professor of English at the University of Florida. Your state is really uh, breaking some fresh ground in reaction these days. Let's start with a uh, bill, was it, 999, right? That's the British equivalent of 911, right? When you're calling the emergency services, you call 999. What's in that bill? It's a pretty comprehensive attempt to remake higher education in Florida. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this is a kind of unprecedented, as many commentators have pointed out, effort. Some of the things that leapt out at me were that the bill is going to assign an unprecedented amount of direct control over the university governance and even a curriculum to political appointees of the governor. And this is the effect of a restructuring in higher education that began way back under Jeb Bush that we're really seeing the full consequences of. It's going to empower the also directly political appointed board of trustees at each university to take direct control of hiring of faculty. This again, you've seen the consequences of these boards in the coup at uh, the new college that took place last month. It's also going to eliminate federally mandated diversity and equity criteria and hiring practices. It's going to strip away long established rights and practices of academic freedom, including and especially uh, tenure. It's going to enable the Board of Trustees to review tenure at any point. It enables the State Board of Governors to create and oversee five-year comprehensive post-tenure reviews that will include, in addition to performance evaluations, undefined quote-unquote other considerations. And it will enable the Board of Trustees to review tenured faculty at any point that they want. Uh, it creates onerous and time-consuming performance reviews, whose metrics, again, include clear political goals, such as the education for citizenship of the Constitutional Republic. And I'll, I'll add to that, I did a word search uh, through the document this morning, and interestingly, the word democracy never appears. When I was reading through it last week, I was struck not just by the additions, but by some of the things they were taking out. Yes. One of them was the notion of teaching the virtues of like, civic involvement, democratic participation. And that was being replaced by this basically enforced patriotic indoctrination. Education for the citizenship of a constitutional republic. 
And that language appears again and again. And that's related to some of the things that I think are getting less attention in this, that one of the things it's also going to do is further expand and enhance the power of a series of recently formed far-right politically sponsored institutes on the various campuses, such as the Hamilton Center here. And this is expanding them to have real power over not only the university's general education curriculum, but that for the entire state system. And that, too, related to an unprecedented in the nation's history. I don't know of any other case of this, the direct control over general education as a whole and the elimination of majors. I mean, it really is a comprehensive and frightening package they have. Prohibition of minors or majors in critical race theory, gender studies, or derivatives of these belief systems. Many of these provisions are rather vaguely worded. And given the power that the the administration is given under this law, it's not too far-fetched to say they can do pretty much anything they want with it. Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, the new state statutes that they refer to, 74-1000.05, again and again, this is the what most people know as the infamous anti-woke bill that was uh, passed last spring, that a lot of the enforcement of that and that that bill is still being challenged in the courts and in fact hasn't been instituted. So far, the courts have ruled strongly against this. And a lot of it has to do with the vagueness of these dictates. It really just gives expansive kinds of power to determine these these changes. I was reading some of the the decision in which the judge um, stayed the uh, enforcement of the Stop Woke Act, and it cites the state's argument that because state university professors are public employees, there's no free speech issue. They're essentially the state mouthpieces in the classroom, which is a very aggressive idea of reimagining a state university system. Yeah, it really is. As part of the lawsuit, they very explicitly said they're redefining academic freedom to reduce the complications of their and maneuvers of their argument. They're essentially arguing that the only person who has academic freedom in this state is the governor. Everyone else is overseen by the governor. I love that the judge is ruling a lot as a literature professor because he begins by quoting Orwell's 1984. Oh, yeah, the clock struck 13, right? Yes, exactly. Also, uh, the 999 would ban any programs or campus activities that, quote, espouse diversity, equity, and inclusion or critical race theory rhetoric. I mean, it's not just what's going on in the classroom, but what's going on extracurricular activities. Indeed, which has been also linked to other transformations at the university, including new restrictions on the freedom of speech of student organizations, the real chilling effect on uh, freedom of speech on all the different levels. Well, and the clock strikes 13 uh, quote was uh, deployed uh, as a critique or a gloss on the, um, the notion that, that DeSantis is doing this in the name of freedom. Yes, It's it's remarkable. Yeah, it really is a kind of textbook example of Orwellian doublethink, isn't it? The bill would also ban any teaching of American history that defines it as contrary to the creation of a new nation based on the universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. Aside from raising the Declaration, which has some good stuff in it, don't get me wrong, to the status of a sacred text, I presume this would prohibit any mention of the fact that its author was a slaveholder. That's quite, quite possible. It's interesting that the person the state appointed to head our conservative Hamilton Center uh, for Classical Education, who's going to be given all this new power, is a member of the Federalist Society. So this has to do with the founder's intent kind of arguments of, about reading these documents as well. And so, yes, anything that's seen as contrary, any kind of contextual arguments that run afoul of these things. The basic premise of this on so many levels is so deeply insulting to the intelligence of the students. I mean, really, we should recall that all of this begins on attempting to prohibit the kinds of representations of successful families and parenting for children under the age of 10. And essentially, they've expanded that now to the university as a whole. The vague language they use again and again here of faculty engaging in doctrination 
the only real way that Orwell too, and and so many critics of fascism, of indoctrination is shown. The only real way you can ever indoctrinate is by preventing people from having experiences and encounters. It's never a coincidence that they begin by banning books, which is the images that are going across the, the media right now and the internet of the empty bookshelves in schools. This is what they have the sites set on for Florida as well. You're getting the same sort of thing at the primary and secondary level in Florida, right? Absolutely. absolutely. In fact, it's far worse for them because they don't have the kinds of protection that academic freedom is informed for so long in, in our practices and the strengths of their union contracts also don't prevent that, which is the introduction today of part two of this assault, which is the new uh, Senate bill, which will dramatically uh, restrict the power of employee unions. Yeah, I want to return to the union question in a moment. Uh, first, uh, a couple of other things. I mean, DeSantis himself is a product of Harvard and Yale, and these institutions would not tolerate this sort of nonsense for a second. Is this like a two-tier system where uh, the public university is supposed to observe all these uh, political limits, whereas uh, the private university is free to uh, teach as it wants? The absence of the term democracy in this regard is really indicative. Here, it is imagining the nation as a constitutional republic on the model of Plato's Republic, where there is a hierarchy of enlightened leaders coming from particular classes, and then the masses who are to be ruled by these. And it's very much connected to that structure. The one exemption they make towards democratization now is the creation and funding of what essentially are going to be far-right recruiting centers on the model of what's already happened in Arizona. And this is the another front of this that we're all facing. You mentioned New College. Um, what exactly happened there? Uh, what was New College and was it about to become? New College has long been one of the most prestigious liberal arts colleges in the nation. For many, many years before the uh, so-called Rise to Five initiative for our university, leading to its uh, U.S. News and World Report ranking last year as the number five public institution in the nation, that New College was, a, was the highest rated public institution in the state. They've had a very open uh, liberal arts curriculum. They've been very welcoming and supportive institution for diverse students, racially, gender, and so on. It was a kind of unexpected follow-up to the impositions that were happening at our state. They had brought in a very interesting new president a few years ago at New College. And then at the announcement of the next stage in DeSantis's war on higher education, he suddenly removed and appointed a whole new group of trustees. And the board of trustees in the state of Florida is an extraordinarily powerful group who serve at the behest of the governor. The leader of our board of trustees, Mori Husseini, is a major fundraiser for DeSantis. He appointed these new appointees, some of them from out of state, some of them with uh, no educational experience, and their first action was to remove the president. The reports are they would not allow her to make her statement that these new board of trustees members were shouting down the former president at this. They've announced now a draconian reorganization of education at that institution. I understand from reports that their new president, who's another uh, political crony of the governor, was greeted very chillily the other day at his introduction to the university. So it's a very, very frightening situation to watch. And in a sense, the things that they've been doing internally now at our university, at New College, at other universities, are now being taken to a kind of systematic level in these bills. One of the people that DeSantis appointed uh, to govern New College was uh, the notorious Christopher Rufo, the man who made uh, critical race theory famous. That's an alarming appointment. 
Yeah, yeah, and deeply, deeply. And again, the lack of qualifications. And he's serving very effectively as a, a public spokesman for the governor's agenda on these things and keeps intoning that, in fact, he's representing the, a mandate of the voters <laughs> in this state, ignoring completely the very odd composition of the electorate in our state. What do you mean by that? Florida was the leading of the so-called purple states in the South, along with Alabama, Georgia, Virginia, to us trailing far behind them. (laughs) The demographic boom in the last few years of retirees. Florida has always been um, a state that has attracted retirees to it. It had largely historically been um, people from the Northeast living on the coasts. In the last few decades, we've seen a massive expansion of these new communities like the villages just south of us, which is the place you will see it often in the media because first Donald Trump and now Ron DeSantis use it as a primary locale to announce their policies. The formation of these new communities has skewed the voting population. And a lot of the decisions that are being made, especially decisions that affect college students, younger uh, residents of the state with faculty, are being made by people who have no stake in those things. I'm speaking with Phil Wegner, an English professor at the University of Florida. Back to the union bill. What would that do? Okay, now you uh, mentioned the union uh, bill. What, what about that? What would that do? Yeah, it's just um, brand new. This is part of something that has been proposed repeatedly, successfully uh, defeated by the powers of the union. DeSantis announced again in his wonderful Orwellian uh, doublespeak as a payroll protection Uh, legislation for the teachers in the state. The major provisions of this brand new bill will remove direct payroll deductions to support the union, increase the threshold for the authorization of the union, which, as uh, some of the reports have already said, was a a successful strategy that Scott Walker used to break public unions in the state of Wisconsin. We've already equaled Wisconsin's threshold. Now this is going to be increased to uh, 60% of the membership of unions. And then finally, even requiring such trivial and absurd things as signing an agreement annually that we recognize that Florida is a a so-called right-to-work state. That's another one of those great phrases they came up with, (laughs) but this one was decades ago. Now, of course, DeSantis is getting a lot of the attention, but other Republican-run states around the country are doing similar things, aren't they? This is really a, a national movement. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's very important here, I was actually at the beginning going to thank you and then also thank the national media for anointing DeSantis as the front runner for the 2024 um, Republican nomination because um, I think this has brought attention to what's going on in Florida that we might not otherwise be receiving. But be assured, what's happening here is the model for other states, and it is a model that is aimed at the nation as a whole. And what we're seeing in so many places is this acceleration and and, and efforts to one-up the imposition of these things in other states. Really, what began all of this in our state was... DeSantis taking notice of what had happened in the 2020 uh, governor's election in Virginia and the attack of very successful attack of their current governor on the COVID policies of his uh, Democratic predecessor. A lot of this lies, too, in DeSantis's deep frustrations at the educational structures in our state 
both to respond uh, to impose his will in terms of the response to the COVID pandemic and um, its response to uh, 2020 Black Lives Matter summer. So it was noticing that that success that DeSantis began to implement some of these uh, far-reaching transformations, but to one-up them. And then, right, this is continued. I mean, this is a governor, remember, that had expressed publicly his jealousy of the governor of Texas for not having a border so that he couldn't impose excessive punishment of immigrants on them. As you said, this is something that uh, the success of these things are inspiring other uh, political actors. And it's a very, very frightening time for the nation. It's funny you mentioned uh, DeSantis's uh, annoyance about COVID policy. Um, Trump the other day was uh, on his Truth Social outlet saying that uh, DeSantis's COVID policies were too strict. He locked down the state, and uh, so I guess uh, DeSantis wasn't loose enough for some tastes. I, I believe he got that from South Dakota's governor. Christy Nome, yeah. Yeah, Christy Nome, who maybe throw her hat in the ring too for the presidential campaign. And she said, you know, we did far better than DeSantis. We never locked down our state. It really did strike a chord for him. And this is, I think, why Trump is aping that language, because this was part of his frustration. It led initially to DeSantis directly intervening in local school boards. In our county, he used a very narrow technicality to remove one of the county school board members, replace them with one of his political appointees in order to roll back the uh, COVID mandates in our county. The success that he had there led him to, again, I mean, this work keeps coming up, but I think it's so true, unprecedented intervention in school board elections, including exorbitant donations to candidates running on his agenda for local school boards. And he's been very successful in that regard, too. And a lot of the consequences you're seeing for the uh, schools around the state are not an effect of legislative decisions, but are effect of decisions that have been made on the local level. He also fired a prosecutor, right, in was yes. it Jacksonville for being <laughs> yes. too soft by his yes, uh, life. that is uh, tied up in the courts. I mean, one of the things, too, uh, for your listeners to, to check out is it's really interesting to do follow-up on so many of these actions that he's taken, the infamous parading out of parolees who uh, violated voting rights, uh, um, that most of them, I don't know if any of them are actually going to be prosecuted. A good number of them were voting directly on the instructions of DeSantis's government. That has failed. We've seen the response to the immigration stunt he pulled last fall, um, and in, in this case as well. One of the things that is very much occurring in so much of this is the high-profile announcement of these extraordinarily draconian, unprecedented changes, and then the challenge of these in the courts. And part of the real point of the bill today to strip the rights of unions in the state is to weaken even the possibility of legal challenges. DeSantis was up in New York City a few weeks ago, uh, touting his way of doing things, portraying New York City as crime-ridden. But in fact, our murder rate is significantly lower than Florida's. (laughs) But that that detail never gets uh, covered. Well, I mean, what you're raising is a really important point. So much of these changes are taking attention away from very real concerns in our state. We have a very, very serious um, housing crisis in uh, this state right now. The impacts of climate change 
in our state are not being addressed in any adequate. Um, we're coming up against, and something I was had touched on earlier, we're coming up on a real demographic uh, crisis in the state. And we're now seeing the beginnings of an exodus of people in the professional occupations in our state. Medical doctors, we're seeing, going to see exodus of university faculties, teachers, we're, we've been facing a real teacher crisis. Again, I don't know if you've heard that last fall he passed an initiative that those who had so many years of military service or their partners could bypass all certification and begin a meeting. Oh, yeah, that was a nice touch. Yeah, in elementary schools. Again, they're very, very small numbers of people actually uh, signed up for this. And this is a, one of the other issues that so many of these policies that are being put into place, how to institutionalize these, who are you going to find to teach in these institutions? And so all the hard work that has been done for so many decades to raise the profile of our state's education systems are going to be undone very, very quickly here. So much of this uh, culture war um, attacks hides the facts of the the very real and serious um, crises the state is facing right now. Where is this all coming from? Uh, I know he won a re-election by a large margin, but what is his political base? Where's the uh, initiative for these sorts of measures? Where's that coming from? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. This is not my field of expertise, but my understanding is in part, remember, uh, DeSantis won in 2018 by a very, very tiny margin, largely based on the endorsement of Donald Trump and um, his promises that he would directly support Trump's um, policies, infamous commercial of uh, him reading to uh, his child, uh, Trump's build that wall. (laughs) He had that base. He began to pick up national profile, especially beginning in 2020. A lot of the bankrolling of his support for these things come from national Uh, far-right education reform organizations, a lot of them funded by the Koch brothers. It's the old story. You're looking for his support, follow the money. The relationship between DeSantis and the far-right Hillsdale College in uh, Michigan has been discussed a great deal. The institution of Hillsdale Charter Schools, a lot of what's being implemented have been on wish lists for uh, these national organizations for a long, long time. And then I think the final um, component of this is, again, the demographic change and the introduction of a more conservative older population here who are already through the stages of the education of their own children when they come to this state. And so they have very, very particular narrow interests and largely in cutting taxes. And of course, these are public expenditures. And so when you promise you're going to dramatically cut these, you get that support. And so there is a very odd I said, unique to our situation in Florida, part of a larger national far right, and then part of these uh, these dark money um, conservative donors that have, I think, really created the uh, base for DeSantis's rise. And finally, I mean, the impulse when these kind of crazy things come down is to turn to the courts to try to block them or overturn them. But the courts are changing and decisions can be reversed. Can this really be fought without some sort of broader, uh, large-scale political mobilization? Yeah, I would agree fully. No, it cannot be fought solely in the courts. Related to that too, it really is important to keep in mind that You'll hear repeatedly that the excessive levels of these uh, bills will never be passed, but that could in part be the intent because many of their seeming more tamer um, 
mandates would have dramatic effects, not only on education, but on freedoms of speech, freedom to organize, (laughs) uh, political freedoms on the democratic processes of our state. And so know that the courts will be limited. There is already an understanding that Every decision, the decision we were talking of Judge Walker earlier, is very likely going to be challenged to a higher court. And there's the hope that there will ultimately be a win. So yes, this is absolutely has to be fought on a local state level and on a national level. And if I can put in one little plug, the uh, Florida Education Association is calling for a day of action on March 7th, both for people in the state and across the nation. March 7th is the day of the opening of the, the state's legislative session, and they're asking people across the nation to uh, contact the state and to say, this is unacceptable, this will not stand, we need to, to challenge this. And I think those things will have effects. That was Phil Wegner, a professor of English at the University of Florida. To learn more about the March 7 campaign Phil mentioned, visit feaweb.org, feaweb.org, or Google 3-7-challenge, 3-7-challenge. We talked some about Christopher Rufo, the right-wing provocateur who made critical race theory famous. From there, Rufo has moved on to anti-LGBTQ activism, notably raising a demented level of alarm around drag queen story hours and sowing fear that the very mention of sex in the classroom is a form of grooming. Public schools, he said, are a hunting ground for sexual predators. Rufo has made the rounds of the conservative think tanks, Heritage, Claremont, and the Anti-Evolution Discovery Institute. He's found a very receptive audience in Ron DeSantis, who appointed him to the governing board of the New College of Florida. The other day, he had this to say on Twitter. We will be shutting down low-performing, ideologically captured academic departments and hiring new faculty. The student body will be recomposed over time. Some current students will self-select out. Others will graduate. will recruit new students who are mission-aligned. That's the end of Rufo's tweet. He sounds not unlike those charter school hustlers who, when faced with a bad performance, fire the student body. If it weren't so destructive, his claim that he's shutting down ideologically captured academic departments would be hilarious because, as we heard from Phil Wagner, their vision of public education is based on the notion that, in the words of federal judge Mark Walker, who blocked enforcement of the Stop Woke Act, the state has unfettered authority to muzzle its professors in the name of freedom. There are court challenges to similar laws in Oklahoma and New Hampshire. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, another new release, this from Boy Genius, Not Strong Enough. Till next week, bye. Racing through